Next week, we'll look in the scripture at some, some of the truths about the birth of our Savior. Today, I just want to finish this chapter. There are things in this chapter, the end of it, that truly relate to aspects of the incarnation, the coming of our Lord, and we'll bring some of those uh, applications out as we bring this through. But, you know, we've been studying this chapter for quite some time. It began, the beginning of the chapter begins with the incident where uh, the Jewish leaders bring to Jesus a woman who was caught in adultery in the very act. They're looking for her head. Not only are they looking for her head, they in a deeper level are looking for the head of Jesus. They're looking for an occasion against him to make him slip up. From that, Jesus goes into this extended teaching to these people about the reality that he is the light of the world. And then from that flowed a lot of conversation and discussion about our will, our desires, our nature. And as we get to the end of the chapter, we come back to a discussion concerning Abraham. That's why we read in Genesis chapter 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. And we find out some things not only about Abraham, we find out some things here in this chapter about Jesus and who he is as the light of the world. And I want you to notice with me, we're going to be, begin reading in the text in verse 48. This is after Jesus has said to them, you're not of your father Abraham, you are of your father the devil. And then Jesus said, and your will, your will is to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He did not abide in the truth because there is no truth in him. From that, these Jewish leaders are ticked off. And they reply to Jesus. The Jews answered him in verse 48. Are we not right when we say of you that you are a Samaritan? That you have a demon? So Jesus has just told them, you are of your father the devil, and now they're going to flip this around and say, no, you are a man who has a demon, and you're a Samaritan. That is a very derisive way of saying of him that, that your religion, your belief system is idolatry. It's this syncretistic religion that we studied in John chapter 4, and they are derisively saying of him, you're not the Messiah in any way, but you are an imposter, and you're a blasphemer, and you have a demon. And so they are truly deriding Jesus, and Jesus answers them, and he says to them, I don't have a demon. In actuality, I honor my father, and although I honor my father, you are dishonoring me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and that is his father, obviously, and he says he is the judge. And so Jesus commits himself to his father. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now let's think about what Jesus is saying there. As we went through this chapter, many times we saw Jesus say things about his word. 
He talked about his word as the truth. And he says, you will keep my word. You will abide in my word. He says to the Jews who reject him, you can't understand my word. You don't want to keep it. You're unwilling to heed what I've said. Now he says here, if you keep my word, notice this again, whoever keeps my word, he will never see death. That little phrase, keeps my word, is acting really as a synonym, as a metaphor for the concept of believing in Jesus. That if we believe in Jesus, we will keep his word. We will guard his word because his word is the same as his person. And so it is in believing in Jesus that we keep his word. And so he says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. And the Jews say, now we know you got a demon. Because Abraham died. So did the prophets. Yet you're going to say, if anyone guards my word, he won't taste death. Now there again, see the word taste. This is almost used in a very similar way as what Jesus said when he said you will not see death. Now they're saying you won't taste death. Now, obviously, when Jesus is talking here about seeing death, he's talking about eternal death. When they are thinking, they are thinking merely in terms of physical death. And so they say, hey, you're nuts. you got a demon. How can you say that someone who keeps my word will never see death, will never taste death? Because even Abraham died. All the prophets have died. And they were faithful to God. And so then Jesus goes on from that. In this conversation, they say to him, are you greater? This is an important question that they're bringing up. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who, this is the central question that Jesus is going to answer at the end of this chapter. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you? If you're going to say, we'll never taste death, and then you're going to say, I'm greater than Abraham, who are you? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, then my glory means nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, the one of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, then I would be just like you, and I would be lying. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Now notice verse 56 to 58, because this is going to end up forming the crux of our message. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. Abraham lived 2,000 years prior to Jesus, roughly. So we're talking like 4,000 years ago in relationship to us. You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I am saying to you, 
before Abraham came into existence, I am. So they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus, hiding himself from them, went out of the temple. A lot of things in this text. There's a lot of things that we could discuss. There's a lot of things that we could really kind of, you know, just drill down into and try to expound this morning. In order to really get a grip on things, I want to look at the end of the chapter and relate it to the rest of the things that we've already studied. But I think it's really interesting to note here, at the beginning of the chapter, these Jewish leaders have brought a woman to Jesus wanting her to be stoned. Jesus has, in wisdom, delivered her from death and said, I don't condemn you to her. Go and sin no more. And now those same men that want to stone the woman are wanting to stone Jesus. They're going to pick up stones and throw them at him and stone him, and yet Jesus just eludes them and leaves the temple. We don't know exactly what that would look like. You know, in your own mind's eye, you can think, how does this happen? Jesus just slips away in the crowd. They do not lay their hands upon him, and they do not get their way with him, but it becomes another occasion in which these men's hatred is beginning to be intensified against Jesus to where they can no longer even see straight when they think of him. And they want his death. They want him stoned. They do so because stoning is the prescribed means of execution for a blasphemer, isn't it, from the Old Testament? That is why they want to stone him. They are not successful in it. Now, as we go through this, let's think about some things about Abraham. Let's really focus in on these verses, and I want to start in verse 56. Now, remember, Abraham is a major figure in the Bible, isn't he? Matt talks a little bit about it. Dave read about it in Genesis chapter 12. From Genesis chapter 12 going up to chapter 25 in the book of Genesis, we have the story of Abraham. From that, we get the story of his sons, the patriarchs. But Abraham is a major figure in the Bible. If you don't know who Abraham is, when you read the New Testament, there's a lot of things that are just going to be mysterious to you, and you're not going to understand Abraham is called to leave by God from Ur the Chaldees and to make his way through the Fertile Crescent, following the river beds of the Euphrates and the Tigris, and go through the Fertile Crescent. And he comes down into the Promised Land. God says, I will give you a land that you do not know what it is and where it is. And God calls Abraham and takes him from a place of rank idolatry and polytheism, and he takes him to the promised land where God reveals himself to him and makes a covenant with him. Various times in the book of Genesis, God reiterates that covenant. We read Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, I will multiply you and I will bless you And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that is clearly through the Messiah, through the coming of Jesus, the seed of Abraham. And he says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor and curse you, I will curse. God says that. 
I will curse. Chapter 15, God reiterates the covenant and expands it. Chapter 17, God reiterates the covenant and he expands it. And he says to him, I'm going to come back in a year and you're going to have a son. And Sarah's in the tent. And she laughed. She comes out. She sets the meal in front of Jehovah God, who is there in a pre-incarnate appearance. And he looks at her and says, you laughed in the tent. What'd she say? No, I didn't. What did he say? Oh, you did. And she didn't reply. And then, in chapter 21, 22, the covenant in its last Fulfillment is reiterated one more time after Abraham has obeyed God and taken his one and only son, Isaac, took him to Mount Moriah, and there laid him down as a sacrifice, as a picture of what Jesus would do. Now, in this passage, they are talking about Abraham. They say of Jesus, they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? And then Jesus comes back to that. And I want you to notice this. In verse 56, he says to them, notice verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. There are two time references in that verse. It's easy to miss it when you just read over it. The two time references are in the first phrase and then in the second phrase. The first time reference, notice this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Jesus is saying, in the life of Abraham, as Abraham lived his life, Abraham, in his earthly life, believed the promises that God had made, and he rejoiced in them, And he was rejoicing that someday he would see the day of his seed, the Messiah. So this is a reference to Abraham and his faith. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. This word rejoice is an interesting word. It literally is a a Greek word which means to jump for joy, to leap for joy. And it often has the context of just the word to laugh. To laugh out loud. And so he's saying, Abraham was rejoicing in his life at all the promises that God had made when God would appear to him and he would make promises to him. It was was a joy to Abraham, and Abraham believed those promises, and he relied on them. Like I said, this word means to leap for joy. There's another occasion where that word is used in the New Testament. It's an interesting one. And it tells us that. When Mary came to the home of was it Cousin Elizabeth, is that the relationship? As Mary walks into the house, the baby, John the Baptist, who was in her womb, leaped for joy. That's the word, very same word. That baby leaped for joy in the womb at the coming of the Messiah. Now, That word, like I said, many times is translated with the concept of laughter. Um, Let me show you this. Oh, I thought I had the verse. Sorry, I must have it somewhere else in my, I'll see it later. 
We'll come back to it. Here's the other time reference. He saw it and was glad. Abraham leaped for joy that someday he would see the day of the Lord. And then Jesus says what? He did see it. And when he saw it, what was his response? He was glad. So Abraham saw the day of the Lord in its fulfillment, and he was glad. Abraham in his earthly life, 2,000 years previous, believed the promise of God, and it was accounted to him to be righteousness. And then at a point in time in the future, Abraham is in paradise. And God the Father says to his son, it's time. I've got a maiden, a virgin, in Nazareth, and the Holy Spirit is going to take you down there, and you are going to be conceived in the womb. And when that happened, how was Abraham responding in heaven? Hallelujah, the time has come. Abraham saw it and was glad. That is the two time references that he is making. When these people hear this, they clearly are understanding what Jesus is saying. When they have just asked Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? This is how Jesus is telling them that, yeah, I know Abraham. I know him real well. I've had a lot of conversation with him and he saw me leave heaven's glory to come here to live among you. Let's think some things that we learn about Abraham <coughs> in this text. And there's some application for us this morning. Number one, before, Jesus says of Abraham before Abraham was. That simply means to become or to come into being. That is telling us that Abraham began to be at a point in time. Right? Before Abraham was. Before Abraham began. I am. Now that's telling us something about our human condition. Let's think about ourselves for a minute. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches the pre-existence of souls in heaven. Nothing that teaches that. But the Bible does teach directly that we are created in the image of God. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made and he knows all our days before there's one of them. And the Bible teaches that at the moment of conception, we become a person, a being created in his image. When my physical body comes into existence, so too does my soul. It is at that moment. This is the teaching of the Bible. There's no teaching in the Bible that says there's a pool of souls in heaven and when a body is created in a womb, then a soul is chosen from heaven and sent to earth to live in that body. No, we come into existence in a moment of time. And so Abraham is simply the illustration of this. Jesus says of him, before Abraham became, before Abraham began, I am. So Abraham began to be at a point in time. Now, let's just think about math for a minute. Let's think about timelines. Let's put ourselves in a timeline. Here's my beginning point. 
That's conception. That's when you began. You're at a beginning point. And the Bible teaches that from that point in time, you are now immortal. And you are a line that goes on to infinity. Somewhere on that line, different events will happen, but somewhere on that line, you will be faced with physical death. But that physical death will not break that line. You will continue. And we'll see that in the text in a minute. You will continue. And you will be somewhere. And so it doesn't break that line, but it does become the point. This is another point that will take us and usher into us into eternity into a fixed destination. Now, when we think about Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus is a line that goes like this. And his incarnation is a point in time, but it is not his beginning like it is ours. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. This is telling us about ourselves and about Jesus. So there's some things here we learn about Abraham that are important to us. Here's another thing we learn about Abraham. Abraham leaped for joy at the promises that God had made. And I already talked about the word to leap for joy. This is where I got ahead of myself. But notice this. This is a passage in Genesis chapter 17. God says to Abraham... In conversation, because we often only think of Sarah who laughed. But here Abraham laughs. And he doesn't get chewed out for it. Which is interesting because it tells us here that Abraham's was not a laugh of unbelief, but it was rather a laugh of joy and belief. God says to Abraham, as for your wife Sarah, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I'm going to bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down on the earth, and he laughed. And he said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth. Did you hear this week that a 70-year-old lady had a child? It actually happened this, this week. A woman who was 70 years old had a baby. I'm sure her husband was laughing. <laughs> and I'm sure they're not laughing now when they're getting up at 2 in the morning. But he laughs in joy. I mean, this is not a laugh of disbelief. This is a laugh like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this. God has promised. I'm a hundred-year-old man, my wife is 90, and she's going to have a baby. Oh, my goodness. That's, G, that, that's, that's Abraham's response. Here's another thing we learn about Abraham. Abraham was conscious and aware of events related to earth when Jesus came. And Abraham had died. Right? 
Abraham has died. His bones are moldering in the grave. They've been there for almost 2,000 years, but his soul is with the Lord. And Abraham is conscious and aware of what is going on. And he's happy. That tells us about eternity. That tells us about people who we love and know who go to be with the Lord. You know, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And to be in his presence. What did, what did Jesus say to the thief on the, cry, on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. What's another name for paradise, by the way, in the Old Testament? Abraham's bosom. Isn't that interesting? Abraham's bosom. So what we learn here as well, we see this in the scripture that Abraham acts as a covenant head of all the redeemed who believe, and he acts as a covenant head of the redeemed in paradise, and we see this in the phrase where it's called Abraham's bosom. That when somebody died and they went to be with the Lord, they went into Abraham's bosom. Why? Because they came from Abraham's bosom. Because they are his child. Abraham is the father of all who believe. And you really see this play out in a story that Jesus told about a rich man and Lazarus. And um, how a rich man had everything he wanted. And a Lazarus, who is a poor man, is a beggar at his gate. Both the rich man and Lazarus die. And it tells us the angels. This is interesting. It tells us what happens. This is an insight into what happens when someone dies. This isn't just a story. This is Jesus telling us what happens. The angels came and took him to Abraham's bosom. But the rich man lifted his up, eyes up in hell, being in torment. There's this contrast that we see all through that. But we see Abraham really acting as a covenant head. Father Abraham, who had many sons, because we are his children in the sense that we follow him. The one who it tells us in Genesis believed God, and it was imputed to him to be righteousness. He was called the friend of God. Now, in this text, there's a bunch of fathers that have been mentioned. Let's sort them out for just a minute this morning. First of all, in verse 41, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. These Jews have said to Jesus, we have one father and it's God. Jesus then replies to them, if God were your father, you would love me. So he is telling them clearly what? God is not your father. And Jesus comes back in verse 44, and he says, no, you are of your father, the devil. And we already talked about that. We're not going to go into it again today. But he's really telling us here that our nature comes from the sin of Adam and how he was murdered in the garden, him and Eve, by their sin, by their transgression, and thus, they are in the kingdom of Satan. And that is our natural condition, as we've already studied. He says, no, you're not of God. You're of your father, the devil. That's your condition without me. Jesus then says in verse 49, I honor my father. And he is talking about God. They then mention their father, Abraham, again. And Jesus comes back into this conversation about Abraham. Now, you will remember earlier, Jesus said, Abraham's not really your father. He says, 
you are the offspring of Abraham, but you are not his children. And he makes a distinction there between just physical descent and spiritual descent. Tells us again, you can be born into a Christian home and be as pagan as the day is long. It is not in physical descent. It is in the spiritual reality of believing and trusting as an individual in what God has done. And then he says in verse 54, my father glorifies me. Now, let's go on. And I want you to notice what Jesus says here. And we're going to get into a little bit of a history lesson and some facts. And then we're going to make some closing applications. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 58. They have said, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? They understand the implications of what Jesus just said in those dual time references about Abraham's existence. Jesus replies, truly, truly, amen, amen. I am saying to you, before Abraham came into existence, I am. I am. Now, that, this is kind of a Hebrew rendition of it. This would be more modern Hebrew. This would be more the Hebrew that Moses would have written. It's four letters. That's why it's called the Tetragrammaton. It's just four letters there's no vowel points, right? In Hebrew, there's no vowels. So it would just be these letters. We'll look at Y, H, Yahweh. But there are no vowels. Where does this come from? First of all, it comes from Exodus chapter 3, doesn't it? In Exodus chapter 3, let's go in our mind to the story of Moses. You may want to turn there, you can Moses was born at a time of great turmoil in Israel and in Egypt. And all of the babies of the Jewish people, all of the babies who were male, were being killed. His parents hid him for three months. When they could no longer keep him quiet and they could no longer find a hiding place, he is placed in a little basket of bulrushes. Can you imagine doing this, mothers? And taken to the Nile River, and in a prayer to God and a plea for his safety, she puts him adrift. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and he is raised in the palace. He becomes a man of great learning, but finding out his roots and seeing one of his countrymen being abused by one of his masters in slavery, Moses kills that man, buries him in the sand, and thinks it's done. The next day or so, he sees two of his countrymen having an argument, he says something to them about quitting the argument, and they say, well, are you going to do to us what you did to that Egyptian? And Moses right away knows that the truth is out, and he flees for his life, 
and he goes back into the Negev. The Negev, it was mentioned in Genesis chapter 12, is also called Sinai. Interesting, before the year 1200, when climate change caused a lot of problems in the region because of fossil fuels, <laughs> did you get that? Seriously, before 1200, the Sinai, although a dry area, was truly a pastoral place where herds would, would, would gather and would graze. But climate change set in because climates change. They always have. They always will, right? And it no longer is. But it was always regarded as a dry area because there wasn't a lot of surface water, but it was a good place to graze your flocks. Moses goes back into that region where his father-in-law Jethro is, becomes his father-in-law. And for a period of almost 40 years, Moses is in the Negev taking care of flocks of sheep who are grazing on grass. And God meets him at Sinai at a burning bush. And when God meets him, he says to him, Take the shoes off your feet because the place where you stand is holy ground. And God says to Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. And Moses is saying with his mouth and with his mind, I don't want to go. I have a past there, right? Ever been forced to confront your past? I have a past there. I don't want to go. He says, I can't communicate. All I've been talking to is singing to sheep like a cowboy, right? I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to do this. But God says, you're going to go. He says to God, when I get there, who do I tell them sent me? He doesn't want to just say, God sent me. He says, I want to know your name. And what did God say? When you go... You tell them, I am has sent me to you. Now, there again, this verb, I am, Yahweh, just comes from a Hebrew verb, which is our English verb, to be. To be or not to be, right? Remember the little ditty, to be or not to be? To be. To be just means to be in existence. It, it, it's a weird verb. It's a hard verb. It's used in many settings and in many ways, but here he takes it and he just shifts it and he makes a verb, a noun, a name. I am. I am that I am is actually what he says. I am that I am. Now, how do we get this and then we get our names for God? Well, it's interesting in the 16th century, a guy named William Tyndale, who becomes one of the men who really is instrumental in forming the English Bible, he comes up with kind of a transliteration of this, these four consonants, and that's where we get the word Jehovah. So before the, fifth, before the 16th century, nobody ever said the word in English, Jehovah. They'd never heard of it before. William Tyndale takes it and shifts it and makes it into his Bible by taking these four Hebrew consonants and then translating them and adding some vowel points. 
And so when we say Jehovah, we're actually referring to Yahweh. So it is this, this name for God, Yahweh. Now we say, okay, how do we get that? Because all we have is these, the tetragrammaton, these four consonants. Well, what they did, the Masoretes, the Masoretes were scribes who after Jesus' life really formed the Old Testament scriptures, scriptures for the Hebrew people. They take another name of God, which is the word Adonai, and you don't see this in English because it doesn't work in English, but they take the vowel points from the name for God, Adonai, and they put them into the consonants for Yahweh, and that's where we make up the word. Because nobody really knows for sure how it was said when they said it. That's where we get it, Yahweh. It's the name of God. Now, in the Old Testament before Moses, what did people call God if they had no name of God? Think about that. They didn't have his name. So what did they call him? They called him Elohim. He's God. He's the strong one. And then sometimes they would put with it a description of what he did. So they would say things like El, God, E-L, Shaddai. Have you ever heard of that? Remember the song that Amy Grant used to sing? El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El, E-L, Shaddai. He is God the Almighty. He is God the Almighty, the sustainer. Um, and so they would come up with ways to describe him based upon things that he promised or things that he did, but they didn't have his name. And so Moses says to God at the burning bush, what is your name? And he says, my name is, I've always been. I always will be. That's his name. And he says, this is my covenant name. It's my covenant name for all generations. Now, let's look at some takeaways, and then we'll quit. First of all, concerning Abraham. What do we take away about Abraham? Number one, this is an important one, and I'll just do it real quick. In Genesis chapter 18, when we get to chapter 18, God, Jehovah God, and two angels come to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, where he has tents set up. And Abraham feeds them. He doesn't know it's God at the time. He thinks it's just a visitor. It's a visitor unaware. But it is God himself taking on flesh in a theophany and two angels. Those two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy it. In conversation, some things happen. Notice this. The men got up from there, and they looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to say goodbye to him. And the Lord said, Should I hide from Abraham what I am going to do? Since Abraham is to become a great and a powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And then I want you to notice this verse. This is a very important verse. God says of Abraham, I picked him. And I picked him for this reason. Notice this, so. 
My picking him makes this happen, he says. I have picked him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. The promise is fulfilled, not because of any good in Abraham. The promise is fulfilled because God picked him. And God's picking him enabled him to do something. What did it enable him to do? To command his children and his household, his offspring, after him. And I want us to think about that, men. Our responsibility as a father before the Lord. Abraham was chosen by the Lord and placed in a position to affect his progeny, and in him all the nations of the earth have been blessed. But God has put his hand on us too. And he has picked us, and he has brought us to a time like this, and he has given to us children and grandchildren, and he wants something of us in return. He wants us to be enabled to command, to direct, to guide... That word there, command, is not a word which means like, you're going to do this, and if you don't, I'm going to take you by the scruff of the neck, and I'm going to make you do it. I'm going to command you to. No, it is the word to guide, to direct, to lead. God is saying that God wants men to stand up in the gap and to lead their kids. You know, last week we talked about the traumas that happened in life. Hands down, in my ministry, the largest trauma I have ever talked to anybody about that is the most common thing that people face is absentee dads. And I'm not talking absentee physically. I am talking about absentee men who will not lead their homes and will not bring their children up in the way of the Lord. And God has placed that upon us, guys. It is a solemn responsibility. And Abraham took it seriously. And because he did, we've been blessed. And how about your kids? How about your grandkids? That's takeaway for us. Here's another one. This one is related to God's name. I am. This is my name. I am. This really goes with our catechism this morning. And I didn't set that up. That was the Holy Spirit. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now think about this. We should not treat God's name flippantly. We should refer to him with great care and reverence. We should guard against taking his name in vain. I'm working with the kids right now. We're getting ready for a Christmas Eve program. One of the things we're going to do is we're going to sign, all the kids are going to sign a song that Danny Sample is teaching them. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's taking a lot of work to learn it. And the kids are doing a whole lot better at it than I am. You know, I'm just like, duh, duh, duh. I can't get anything down. But one of, one of the parts of the song that we're learning is where there's a reference to everybody in the room. And Danny was telling us in sign language, it's fine to point to other people. That's not like being rude when you're doing sign language. But then she said this, you never point at God in sign language. You're taught to have an open hand to him. I thought, man, that's beautiful. It's 
beautiful. You don't point and accuse him. We don't treat him flippantly or irreverently. We have an open hand of faith to him, trusting in him. So when we think about God's name, we think about his name, I am, we should never treat God flippantly. We should refer to him with care and reverence. But on the other hand, we should use the name of God in prayer and conversation. We shouldn't just use a title. Right? I I want us to really think this thought for a minute. Just stick with me for a minute when we think about this as we close. We think about God has given us his name. His name shall be called what? Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sin. That's his name. It's related to Jehovah. This is his name. Now, how you refer to somebody reveals the depth of your relationship to that person, right? I'll just use an illustration. I've never had my grandson Thaddeus call me pastor. You know what he calls me? Poppy. Why? Because the way you refer to somebody in conversation reveals relationship. If our governor walked into this room I wouldn't go over and say, hi, Mark, it's good to see you. Why? Because I have no relationship with him. I would say what to him? I'd call him our governor. I would refer to him by title, not name. The truth here is this. If you refer to somebody by title, you have a distant relationship with them. If you can call them by their first name, if you're on a first name basis with them, then you've got a relationship with them. Isn't that true? So, our covenant privilege, think about this, is to speak to God, the maker of everything, heaven and earth. And we're on a first name basis with him. He's not just God. I can go to him in prayer and say, Jesus. And I can pray in his name. And when I pray, I pray not to just God, I pray to who? My Abba. My dad. My father. The way you refer to somebody reveals relationship. We as Christians have privilege. The God of this universe is both our father and our friend. And we can refer to him as such. Let's pray. Father, we do close by just thanking you that we are in a covenant relationship with you, that we are in your family, that we are, we are your children. It tells us in your word that because we have the spirit within us, that spirit cries out, no longer bondage, but cries out, Abba, Father. And then, Jesus, you taught us to pray and to use your name when we pray and to pray in your name. And so we come, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that we know you. And that, Father... 
you have known us. And you have set your love upon us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.